Our second speaker will be Anthony Lee, who is professor and chair of art history at Mount Holyoke College, as well as a curator and photographer. A PhD from the University of California, Berkeley, he has been a fellow of the Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson, J. Paul Getty, and Henry Luce Foundations, and the Sterling and Francine Clark Art Institute. Tony is author of the 2001 Picturing Chinatown, Art and, Orient and Orientalism in San Francisco, which won the National Museum of American Arts Charles C. Eldridge Prize for Distinguished Scholarship in American Art and the Cultural Studies Book Prize given by the Association of Asian American Studies. His most recent work includes A Shoemaker's Story, which has a terrific subtitle, being chiefly about French-Canadian immigrants, enterprising photographers, rascal Yankees, and Chinese cobblers in a 19th century factory town. Every chapter's there. And, and he's also co-author with uh, Elizabeth Young on the book on Alexander Gardner's photographic sketchbook of the Civil War, both books published in 2008. My talk tonight will begin with a case study uh, from which I hope I can draw a few, I hope, provocative conclusions that might be the basis for discussion. Uh, on June 11th, 2010, the Associated Press released an astonishing story about the discovery of a rare Civil War photograph. The photograph, a small carte de visite of two young African-American boys, was found at a moving sale in Charlotte, North Carolina, by a New York collector named Kia Morgan. I buy stuff all the time, Morgan reported, but this shocked me. What shocked him, he admitted, was both the rarity of the find and also the pathos of and sympathy for its subjects. These kids were, quote, abused and mistreated and people forgot about them, he stated. They didn't even exist in history. In this interpretation, the boys' bare feet, shabby clothes, and hard, unyielding expressions spoke volumes about their plight, one in which the institution of slavery did not discriminate between grown men and innocent children and subjected them all, young and old, to physical and social abuse and to neglect. When Morgan stated that the boys didn't even exist in history, as he put it, he pointed to a scholarly truth in that in contemporary discussions about the Civil War, the lives of young slaves are rarely discussed. I've never seen another photograph like that that speaks so much for children, Morgan said. AP reported that Morgan paid $30,000 for the picture and the photo album of which it was a part. The album included several family pictures, quote, though neither the name of the family nor any additional pictures from the album were released with the story. However, Morgan claimed that the album's owner might have been a descendant of one of the boys. In addition to purchasing the picture and the album, Morgan paid an additional $20,000 for an accompanying document. A bill of sale from 1854, which stated that a slave called John, whose name was written large in the middle of the bill, was sold in North Carolina by a man named Miles Potter for the then princely sum of $1,150. Although there was no direct evidence of a connection between the photograph and bill of sale, both Morgan and the AP story claimed that one of the children was indeed John, though it remained tantalizingly unclear which of the two boys that might be. Finally, to top off the discovery, the photograph bore the imprint of the great Civil War photographer Matthew Brady, making the picture a trifecta in terms of Civil War finds. Um, the fact that the photograph was produced by the Brady Studio, drove its price up astronomically, 
and combined with the apparent rarity of the subject, slave children, and the accompanying document, the bill of sale, made the $50,000 price tag seem, if not within the grasp of most memorabilia hunters, at least understandable for the likes of super collectors like Morgan. For now, the AP story concluded, Morgan was keeping the photo in his personal collection, but he said, has said he has had an inquiry to sell the photo to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. A day later, on June 12, 2010, the shit, so to speak, hit the fan. <laughs> on blogs and discussion lists throughout the country, photo and Civil War historians, collectors, and journalists began to question the discovery. A reporter named Kate Marcus revealed that the Brady Carte de Visite was, in fact, one half of a stereo view known to have been marketed under the studio name of J.N. Wilson of Savannah, Georgia. Unlike the Brady Carte de Visite, the Wilson stereo view probably dated to the 1870s when the photographer was active. That is, not during the Civil War, but after it. Not during slavery, but after its abolishment, as other bloggers remarked. Unlike Brady, who simply used his studio name as a marker on the picture, Wilson appended on the back the title, Happy Little Nigs, though it is unclear how ironically he meant such a title, given the stern expressions of the boys. How did the reporter Marcus learn of this stereo view? She had rummaged through that obscure website, eBay, right? <laughs> and found that just a few days before the AP story broke, a, tw a set of 12 antique stereo views, including Happy Little Nigs, you can see there at the bottom left, uh, uh, had been auctioned off for the modest sum of $163. The seller of that set of stereo views later admitted he had gotten the photographs in a paper bag at an estate sale in Wethersfield, Connecticut, and had paid $5 for the whole thing. To him, the $163 for which he resold it was a nice profit. With that announcement, the floodgates were opened and others joined in the fray. Not only was the carte de visite not so rare a fine as bloggers described, but in fact, a copy existed in the New York Public Library and had been known about for years. It appeared and still appears today in the library's online catalog and can be found with a simple search for the photographer J.N. Wilson. In addition, as photo historians on another discussion list declared, the stereo view was known to have been sold under the imprint of yet another photographer, W.H. Cushing of Palatka, Florida, who around 1875, when he marketed the work, renamed the photograph Rising Generation. In this retitling of the work by Cushing, the photograph of two young black boys went from being an image of abuse and mistreatment, as told by Kia Morgan, to the patronizing or perhaps ironical happy little nigs of J.N. Wilson to an image of resilience or perhaps even defiance uh, as proposed by W.H. Cushing. In the latter case, uh, resilience of a generation of former slaves who are rising to a more hopeful future under emancipation. More news came tumbling out. On June 13th, the reporter Kate Marcus announced that after scouring the digital library on American slavery, the slave named John on the bill of sale did in fact appear in the estate of one George Potter, who in 1854 had the contents of his estate, including his slaves, sold by his son Miles. However, at the time of the sale, the slave John was 27 or 28 years old, and thus the attribution of one of the boys as John seemed quite unlikely. A week later, 
A Civil War memorabilia collector named Bruce Barilla identified the Starry View as belonging to a set of views published by J.N. Wilson concerning Agnew's turpentine factory in Silver Springs Run, Florida. That is to say, not North Carolina, where Brady's Carte de Visite was discovered, uh, nor Savannah, Georgia, where J.N. Wilson kept his studio, but even further south near what is today Ocala, Florida. The location helped to explain how W.H. Cushing of Palatka, Florida, could have gotten his hands on a copy and remarketed it under his own studio name. Barilla noted the appearance of the barrels as a common theme in all the photographs of the turpentine factory and in his careful registration of slave life in that factory. Agnews was in operation during the Civil War and according to the 1860 slave schedule, had 26 male slaves, almost half of whom were under the age of 16. Brady was known to have solicited copy negatives and prints from all over the South, bloggers reminded each other, including Florida. What Kia Morgan thought of all this new information or the people peddling it is not entirely clear, though he stood by his claims and certainly by the price he had paid. In reply to the various revelations about the photograph, he declared in a follow-up story carried by the Associated Press, if you are buying a Picasso painting, let's say for 20 million, you have to go to a professional who sells Picassos for an expert opinion, <laughs> not somebody who sells a copy for $10 on eBay. Despite Morgan's insistence on the value of his carte de visite, it was clear to most observers within a week of the original story being released that the photograph's luster had been severely tarnished. A blogger put the verdict this way. The boy was not a slave, and his name was not John, and he was not from North Carolina, and the photo is not rare. Now, I don't wish to lay a similar verdict on the photograph, and certainly don't wish to caricature any of the participants involved in the discovery and interpretation of the picture, or to make light of their investments, whether intellectual, financial, or cultural. As for the photograph itself, it's incredibly difficult to say how it, as either a stereo view or a carte de visite, circulated between and among studios, and which photographer of the several who have been named might have been its original maker. Perhaps none of them were. Or perhaps there is another version by yet another photographer waiting to be discovered, though it's difficult to imagine how a fourth or fifth variation of the picture would settle the matter of origins. But I think the photograph and the debate has, as it has spawned provide some instruction about the kinds of things for us to see in Civil War photographs, uh, the subject of our panel this evening. The first thing to say is that photographs from the Civil War era really do continue to impact our perception of that time. Although we know photographs then and now are subject to manipulation and the conditions of their presentation and distribution, we often still want to see what is pictured as the authentic thing. The collector Kia Morgan saw the picture as evidence of abuse and neglect and the boys as representative of a lost generation of slaves. It was only the photograph that gave them visibility. Otherwise, they were lost to history. They don't even exist in history, as he put it. Others saw it as a simple reflection of slave life, where boys on barrels helped to tell the story of the doings of a turpentine factory and run on the backs of slave labor. And still others saw it as no image of slavery at all, but rather of emancipation, since it may have been produced during Reconstruction or after, and therefore fell outside the legally sanctioned institution of slavery. Despite the common belief that photographs are careful representations, not mere reflections, Civil War era photographs often seem to elicit the exact opposite attitude. 
The second thing to say is that if we accept that photographs are not mere reflections, but indeed representations, then the picture of the two boys is of a particular sort very common to the Civil War era. It is not at all surprising that the photograph, whenever it may have first been made, appeared popularly as a stereo view in the years after the Civil War. Already in 1866, there appeared collections of photographs that began to wax nostalgic about a Southern culture already being lost, the Old South, as it was soon called. Plantation scenes of all sorts were packaged together and sold at scenes of a daily life that had been wiped away. J.N. Wilson certainly published his share of them, of people who had worked on the farms, in the cotton fields, and quite often of children who posed seemingly in the middle of work before the camera. They were, as Molly Mitchell, one of our panelists this evening, has written, images of a newly freed black population that tied them to an unthreatening past. That is to say, Civil War era photography already had strong elements of nostalgia as part of its language. The third thing to say, and here is where I'll modulate into an interpretation of sorts, is that this sense of nostalgia, or of loss, was a palpable force from the very beginning, especially with subjects related to the war itself. Partly, this was the result of camera technology, as Josh has outlined, which meant that photographers were required to schlep gargantuan box cameras into the field and spend enormous amounts of time coating their wet plates before they could even expose them. In all, it took a photographer anywhere between 30 and 45 minutes to make a single picture. When Matthew Brady or one of his assistants, like Gardner or O'Sullivan or Pywell, tried to take pictures of the battles, they invariably took pictures after the battles, when all the newsworthy events had already come and gone. All they could do was picture the aftermath, the dead bodies, the empty bridges, the sites once crowded but empty. Their practice, we might say, was filled with loss. I take this photograph, which we've seen now already, by Gardner to be evidence of the photographer's self-consciousness of the fact of his perpetual belatedness. The picture is the first plate in his famous photographic sketchbook of the war, which appeared in 1866, just after the war had ended, and is meant to open the story of the war. If one were to ask historians today, what event might mark the opening of the war, all kinds of answers could be given, although I would guess that a major candidate would be the first shots fired at Fort Sumter in January 1861. I dare say hardly anyone would pick this scene, the Marshall House in Alexandria, Virginia, in which a colonel in May 1861, not a day or a week or a month, but five months after the opening barrage at Fort Sumter, was shot and killed when he brashly attempted to take down a Confederate flag. And in any case, the actual shooting is not pictured, nor the flag, nor the colonel, nor any detail suggesting the killing or its significance. We are left merely with a building where we are told something once happened. It seems already a commemorative site, a place for the tourists to visit and ponder, and for the narrative of the war to exist as available only through the nostalgia or loss offered by the picture. Or take this photograph by Timothy O'Sullivan, plate 22 of Gardner's book. O'Sullivan took this picture when the Battle of Antietam had already passed, yet it did not stop him from asking his subjects to strike poses as if they were witnessing the battle and pretending to relay information about troop movements to their commanders in the fields beyond. 
One man holds an eyeglass as if he were spotting the enemy, although during the actual camera shoot, he was probably looking at empty space, even, or even more fittingly, at a place where the enemy had been long before. In all this, he was most like a photographer. Civil War photographers often anticipated that their work be would become the key elements of historical recall and fashioned pictures to match those needs. As I am suggesting, some photographers built an understanding of that historical labor into their pictures. It's up to us to recognize their strategies. Thank you. Mm -hmm.